Welcome to the United by Strength podcast. Hard work knows no gender, race, sexuality, or creed. It is the universal building block upon which successful tribes are built. Here, you will learn from powerlifting coaches, gymnastics coaches, CrossFit coaches, nutrition coaches, and strongman coaches. We collaborate and share best practices and want to bring our experience and continuing education to you. Up at the start of the technique section, which is on page 39, and we are going to start this section with a quote from Greg Glassman. Learn the mechanics of fundamental movements. Establish a consistent pattern of practicing these same movements, and only then ratchet up the intensity of workouts incorporating these movements, mechanics, then consistency, and then intensity. This is the key to effective implementation of CrossFit programming. Now we're going to begin the technique section, adapted from Coach Glassman's December 1st, 2007 L1 Lecture in Charlotte, North Carolina. In no small part, what is behind this program is the quantification of fitness. This means we put a number on fitness, work capacity across broad time and modal domains. You can assess one's fitness by determining the area under their work capacity curve. This would be similar to a group of athletes competing with each other in 25 to 30 workouts. Include a range of activities, like three pulls on the Concept2 rower for average watts, all the way to running 10 miles, and include a multitude of workouts in between. Compile their overall placing across these events, and everyone then has a reasonable metric of their total capacity. This quantification of fitness is a part of a broader concept that is at the heart of this movement. We call it evidence-based fitness. This means measurable, observable, repeatable data is used in analyzing and assessing a fitness program. There are three meaningful components to analyze a fitness program, safety, efficacy, and efficiency. The efficacy of a program means what is the return? Maybe a fitness program advertises that it will make you a better soccer player. There needs to be evidence of this supported by measurable, observable, and repeatable data. For CrossFit, we want to increase your work capacity across broad time and modal domains. This is the efficacy of this program. What are the tangible results? What is the adaptation that the program induces? Efficiency is the time rate of that adaptation. Maybe the fitness program advertises that it can deliver 50 pull-ups. There is 
a big difference whether it takes six months versus nine years to achieve that goal. Safety is how many people end up at the finish line. Suppose I have a fitness program. I start with 10 individuals. Two of them become the fittest human beings on earth and the other eight die. While I would rather be one of the two fittest than the eight dead, and I do know if I want to play, I am not going to attach a normative value to it. The real tragedy comes in not knowing the safety numbers. These three vectors of safety, efficacy, and efficiency point in the same direction, such that there are not entirely in such that they are not entirely at odds with each other. I can greatly increase the safety of a program by turning the efficacy and efficiency down to zero. I can increase the efficiency by turning up the intensity and then possibly compromise safety. Or I could damage the efficacy by losing people. Safety, efficacy, and efficiency are the three meaningful aspects of a program. They give me all I need to assess it. This quantification of fitness by choosing work capacity as our standard for the efficacy of the program necessitates the qualification of movement. Our quantification of fitness movement introduces qualification of movement. For the qualification of movement, there are four common terms. Mechanics, technique, form, and style. I will not delve into them with too much detail. The distinction is not that important. I use both technique and form somewhat interchangeably, although there is a slightly nuanced distinction. When I talk about angular velocity, momentum, leverage, origin or insertion of muscles, torque, force, power, relative angles, here we are talking about mechanics. When I speak to the physics of the movement, and especially the statistics, and less to so the dynamics, I am looking at the mechanics. Technique is the method to success for completion of a movement. For example, if you want to do a full twisting dismount on the rings, the technique would be pull, let go, look, arm up, turn, shoulder drop, etc. Technique includes head posture and body posture, and there are effective and less effective techniques. Technique includes the mechanics, but it is in the macro sense of how do you complete the movement without the physics. Form is the normative value. This is good or this is bad. You should or you shouldn't, applied to mechanics and technique. Style is essentially the signature to a movement. That is, that aspect of the movement that is fairly unique to you. The best of the weightlifting coaches can look at the bar path during a lift 
and tell you which lifter it is. There are aspects to all of our movements that define us like your thumbprint. It is the signature. To be truly just the signature, style elements have no bearing on form, technique, or mechanics. Style does not enter into the normative assessment, is not important to technique, and does not alter substantially the physics. These four terms are all qualifications to movement. I want to speak generally to technique and form to include all of this, but what we are talking about here is the non-quantification of output, that is, how you move. By taking power or work capacity as our primary value for assessing technique and this reliance on functional movement, and we end up in kind of an interesting position. We end up where power is the successful completion of functional movement. This is not about merely energy exerted. On a graph, you could put work completed on the x-axis and energy expended on the y-axis. Someone could potentially expend a lot of energy and do very little work by being inefficient. Ideally, what that per individual would do would see little energy expended for the maximum amount of work completed. Technique is what maximizes the work completed for the energy expended. For any given capacity, say metabolically for energy expenditure, the guy who knows the technique is going to be able to do the most amount of work. Suppose I take two people at random and they are both trying the same task. One is familiar with how to deadlift and one is not. One knows how to clean, one does not. One knows how to drive overhead, one does not. Suppose they are loading a truck with sandbags. The one familiar with lifting large objects and transporting them is going to do a lot more work. You can have the argument as to who is stronger. For example, you can use an electromyogram and see with what force the, bicep sh the biceps shortens. If you are defining strength as contractile potential, you may end up with the guy with enormous contractile potential, but not knowing the technique of the clean, the jerk, the deadlift, he cannot do as much work. We, however, do not take contractile potential as the gold standard for strength. Strength is the productive application of force. If you cannot complete work, if you cannot express strength as power, if strength cannot be expressed as a productive result, it does not count. Having enormous biceps and quadriceps is useless if you cannot run, jump, lift, throw, or press. And here you have figure one, which is a line graph demonstrating the difference uh, and, and illustrating technique rather in a X and Y axis of energy expended and work accomplished and kind of visually illustrates the point that was just made. This is related to safety, efficacy, and efficiency because technique, also known as quality of movement, is the heart of maximizing each of these.
he or she that knows how to do these movements when confronted with them will get a better result in terms of safety. Two individuals attempt to lift a heavy object. One knows how to pop a hip and get under it, also known as a clean, and the other guy starts to pull with a rounded back. I can tell you what is likely to happen to he or she that does not know how to lift. If you want to stay safe, you better have good technique, good form. Efficacy for any given contractile potential, for any given limit to your total metabolic capacity, he or she that knows the technique will be able to get more work done and will develop faster. If after six months of teaching you how to clean and it still does not look like I would like it to, you will not get twice body weight overhead more quickly than someone who looks like a natural. You want an effective program. You are going to have to move with quality. You want to get the result quickly. Technique is going to be pivotal to your success. Technique is an intimate part of safety, efficacy, and efficiency. We can see how this manifests in CrossFit workouts by way of comparison. I want to look at typing, shooting, playing the violin, NASCAR driving, and CrossFit. What these domains have in common is that a marked proficiency is associated with speed. Being able to shoot accurately and quickly is better than quickly or accurately. You may try to get a job as a typist because you do not make any mistakes. However, for this perfection, you type at a rate of 20 words a minute and only use two fingers. You will never get hired. Playing the violin fast and error-free is critical for a virtuoso. However, someone who gets through Flight of the Bumblebee in 12 minutes is not there yet. A NASCAR driver wants to both drive fast and not wreck. In CrossFit, a perfectly exquisite Fran is worthless if it takes 32 minutes. And yet, it is presented to CrossFit coaches as, should I use good form or should I do it quickly? I do not like my choices. One is impossible without the other. Technique and speed are not at odds with one another, where speed is related to all the quantification of the movement, power, force, distance, time. They are seemingly at odds. It is a misapprehension. It is an illusion. Can you learn to drive fast without wrecking? Can you learn to type fast without making errors? Can you shoot quickly without missing? Eventually, but not in the learning. One is impossible without the other. You will not learn to type fast without typing where you make a ton of errors and then work to reduce the errors at that speed. Then you go faster. And then, again, pull the errors back in. Then go faster and pull the errors back in. You drive faster and faster and then you spin out in the infield or you hit the wall. If you are a race driver and you have never spun out, 
gone out in the infield, or never been in a wreck, you are not very good. If you are a typist and you have never made a mistake, you are very slow. In CrossFit, if your technique is perfect, your intensity is always low. Here is the part that is hard to understand. You will not maximize the intensity or the speed without mistakes. But it is not the mistakes that make you faster. It is not reaching for the letter P with your pinky and hitting the O. It is not hitting the wrong note that made you play faster. It is not missing the target by two feet that made you a better shooter. It is not running into the wall that made you a faster driver. But you will not get there without it. The errors are an unavoidable consequence of development. This iterative process of letting this scope of errors broaden, then reducing them without reducing the speed, is called threshold training. In a CrossFit workout, if you are moving well, I will tell you to pick up the speed. Suppose at the higher speed, the movement still looks good. I will encourage you to go faster. And if it still looks good, I will encourage you to go even faster. Now, the movement starts falling apart. I do not want you to slow down yet. First, at that speed, I want you to fix your technique. What you need to do is continuously and constantly advance the margins at which form falters. It may be that initially at 10, at 10,000 foot-pounds per minute, my technique is perfect, but it falls apart at 12,000 foot-pounds per minute. Work at that 10,000 to 12,000 foot-pounds per minute mark to fix the form, and soon enough, you will have great technique at 12,000 foot-pounds per minute. The next step is to achieve that technique at 14,000 foot-pounds per minute. At first, the technique at 14,000 foot-pounds per minute the technique will suffer. Then you must narrow it in. That is the process. It is ineluctable. It is unavoidable. There is nothing I can do about it. That is not my rule. We are the technique people. We drill technique incessantly, but simultaneously I want you to go faster. You will learn to work at higher intensity with good technique only by ratcheting up the intensity where good technique is impossible. This dichotomy means that it is impossible at the limits of your capacity to obey every little detail and nuance of technique. Some of the refined motor recruitment patterns are not going to always look perfect. I do not know of a domain where speed matters and technique is not at the heart of it. In every athletic endeavor, where we can quantify the output, there is incredible technique at the highest levels of performance. Suppose someone set the new world record for the shot put, but his technique was poor. This means one of two things. One, either with good technique, it would have gone farther, or two, we were wrong in understanding what is good technique. Technique is everything. It is at the heart of our quantification. You will not express power in significant measure without technique. You might expend a lot of energy, but you will not see the productive application of force.
you will not be able to complete functional tasks efficiently or effectively. You will not be safe in trying. There is a perceived paradox here that really is not a paradox when you understand the factors at play. Page 44, Nutrition, Avoiding Disease and Optimizing Performance. The CrossFit message is contrarian. It is against the grain of what occurs at most commercial gyms. They have machines. We detest them. They use isolation movements. We use compound movements. They use low intensity. We use high intensity. Everything about this message is for many people antithetical to all they thought they knew. With nutrition, the theme continues. What most everyone thinks is wrong. In July of 1989, in the Archives of Internal Medicine, Norman Kaplan wrote an absolutely breathtaking bit of research. It is an analysis that has gone completely unchallenged. He was able to demonstrate by an operative mechanism through correlation and more importantly, causally, that hyperinsulinism is at the root of the deadly quartet i.e. upper body obesity, glucose intolerance, hypertriglyceridemia, and hypertension. Hyperinsulinism, i.e. too much insulin, was the cause. If you are healthy, insulin is the normal and essential response to the ingestion of carbohydrate. Insulin is a hormone produced by the pancreas, and you cannot live without it. You can either produce insulin through the pancreas, you can inject it, or you can die. Insulin is responsible for storage of energy in cells. Glucagon is the counter-regulatory hormone to insulin. It releases the energy out of the cells. And one of the things that insulin puts into cells is fat. You can see that the way to get your insulin level too high, aka hyperinsulinemia, is to eat too much carbohydrate. How much carbohydrate is that? It is, in the qualitative sense, your insulin level is too high if it is driving up your blood pressure, making you fat, or reducing your ability to suppress blood sugar after eating carbohydrate. If you are glucose intolerant, hypertensive, or your triglycerides are too high, you are getting too much insulin and thus too much carbohydrate. These are risk factors for heart disease and the process by which we induce atherosclerotic disease, arteries paved over with plaque, in other words. This leads to thrombosis, occlusion, myocardial infarct, and debilitation and death. But when physicians are polled as to what is it that you do not want yourself to get, cancer and heart disease do not rate nearly so high as does type 2 diabetes. And I can tell you how to get it. Type 2 diabetes is caused by a receptor downgrade phenomenon in the liver, muscle, and fat cells. They have a receptor site where insulin attaches. It is similar to a key fitting in a lock. 
Specific shapes on each allow them to bind together. When insulin binds to the receptor, the cell can now receive all good things, including amino acids, proteins, and fat. If you expose yourself to too much insulin, the cells and receptors become blind to it. The key does not work as well in the lock, i.e. receptor downgrade phenomenon. The mechanism is not really much different mechanically than staring at the sun. At first, your eyes see light, but if you do it for a few minutes, you will never see any light again. You just burned out the receptors. That is what happens in type 2 diabetes. What was revolutionary about Kaplan's work is that it disproved an accepted model. Traditionally, what was observed over tens of years was that individuals often first gained weight, i.e. obesity, then their cholesterol went up, hypercholesterolemia, or hypercholesterolemia. Then their blood pressure went up, hypertensive, and then they became become diabetic. There was an assumption, and it is a classical logical fallacy, that the ordering suggested causality, that because this happened first, then this. It was the root cause of all the other conditions. This model is now understood to be fatally flawed, i.e. a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Order of events does not necessitate causality. Kaplan was able to demonstrate with powerful evidence that hyperinsulinism was the cause of all of these conditions, the cause of atherosclerotic disease and cardiac death. All of this is collectively known as coronary heart disease. There has been a very powerful shift and re-understanding that what is causing heart disease is not dietary fat intake, but excessive consumption of carbohydrate. Things like the French paradox is that there is no paradox. The paradigm was flawed. The French eat many times the fat that Americans do and yet have a much smaller frequency of the heart disease. They also consume just a little bit under 5% of the refined sugar that we do. We are eating about 150 pounds of sugar per man, woman, and child annually. It is amazing what efforts we will exert to consume sugar. Your interest in carbohydrates and it is profound, is really no different than your interest in beer or opiates. Sugar tickles the brain and it feels good. And the excuses and things people will do to get that high are unbelievable. Now I tell you how to avoid all of that. Eat a diet of meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, and no sugar. Do that and you are now exempt Meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar, and no coronary heart disease. It has nothing to do with genetics. The genetic part is an intolerance to excess amounts of carbohydrate. It is no different than having a genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Having the gene for alcoholism does not mean it will necessarily be expressed. You would have to drink alcohol. If you do not drink alcohol, you probably will not suffer from alcoholism, at least not in the clinical manifestation of it. 
It is no different for atherosclerotic disease. I do not care what your grandfather died of, your mother died of, your uncle died of, your brother died of. For example, Barry Sears, all his uncles and father died at 49 years of age from atherosclerotic-induced thrombosis, myocardial infarct, heart attack, every single one of them. He is not going to. He is not eating the carbohydrates they ate. Eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar. To get to the same endpoint, these are effective nutritional strategies for avoiding heart disease, death, and misery. One, if you could not have harvested it out of your garden or, or farm and are eating it in an hour later, it is not food. Shop around the perimeter of the grocery store and do not go down the aisles. If it has a food label on it, it is not food. You do not see a food label on the chicken. It is not on the tomatoes, but it is on the chips and cookies. If it is not perishable, it is not food. In 1995, we were delivering almost the same lecture with just less clinical experience, and people were like, you're kidding me. Fat makes you fat, right? It is all simply not true. Optimizing performance, the top of page 47. The next layer to diet is about optimizing performance. Through a diet of meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar, you will not be so lucky as to optimize your output. To get a sub three minute Fran, you need to weigh and measure your meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds fruit, starch, and eliminate sugar. I wish it were not true. I wish the path of fitness was riding bicycles and drinking beer. I wished that is how we did it, but it does not work. What you have to do is eat meat and vegetables, nuts and seeds, some fruit, little starch, no sugar, and then get a scale and measuring cup. You need accuracy and precision to your consumption, or you will never get in a jet stream of elite performance. If you want to have top fuel type performance, you need top fuel. I wish it were otherwise. What do I base this on? No one has ever demonstrated to me anything but inferior capacity on a diet where they did not weigh and measure. I am not telling you that you have to weigh and measure your food, but I am telling uh, is that you are not going to get anywhere in terms of optimizing your performance on a poor diet. And we have seen enough incidences now. I have worked with tens or thousands of people. That's actually a typo in the manual. It's, I have worked with tens of thousands of people. No one has ever done it. You need to weigh and measure your food. Not forever, but at least to start. It is also good to go back to weighing and measuring once in a while. What happens is that the portion requirements diminish for all the foods you do not like. Quote, yes, I only need one spear of asparagus. Ice cream? I think it was a pound at least. Unquote. You will bias in the wrong direction. I can take any cohort, get one of them to weigh and measure, and he or she will pull away. There are very few things you can do short of doing more pull-ups 
that can get you more pull-ups other than eating the way we recommend it. There is a one-to-one correspondence between elite CrossFit performance and the accuracy and precision of their consumption. And what you're going to find is performance improvement after performance improvement. But at some point, you will want to stop the athlete from leaning further out. It is possible you will get too lean to perform well. You may find a plateau in your output, and then you need to ratchet it up. I do the same thing for a hard gainer. I increase their intake as I do not need them to lean out. The first step, when you get as lean as you want to be, and before there is a diminution in performance, double the fat blocks. Increase to two times the fat. If you do not feel a whole lot better, maybe try three times the fat. And if that does not feel a whole lot better and instead you just get thicker, then go back to two times the fat. But I would let performance tell me what to do. In making modifications, I want to see any kind of change in physiognomy. I have more room to play with when someone has extra padding. I have to be more careful when someone with someone who is already ripped. The formula for calculating what is relevant and pertinent to your prescription is lean, body mass, and activity level. Done. There is not an inherent difference for men versus women, for young versus old. I want to know how active you are, and I want to know what your lean body mass is. And everything else is not germane, not pertinent, not relevant. It is extraneous information. Even if you are lactating or pregnant, you would get an insignificant increase in activity level. In the vagaries and contingencies of everyday living, such as schedules and appetite, there are fluctuations in intake that will occur without weighing and measuring. Following these normal fluctuations puts you on a coarser path versus the fine path required for optimized performance. And that is why you will not get there by luck. It is also possible an average CrossFitter becomes extraordinary this way. Commitment and focus are going to overcome genetic limitations. If you commit to the effort, you stand a much better chance. We have had this fantastic experience of playing with this in any cohort. One of them pulls away when they are weighing and measuring their food in this 40-30-30 milieu of macronutrient intake. Thank you for listening to the United by Strength podcast. We hope that you enjoyed the information that we were able to put out today. Please take from it what you want and leave what you don't. If you have feedback for us, please send it to unitedbystrengthpodcast at gmail.com. Please leave us a review if you have the time. It really helps people find the podcast and allows us to grow our base of listeners. Thank you.